Hello and welcome to Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. Tonight I have on my friend, my brother-in-law, several other names I could use, I'm sure. Uh, Matt Manzano is with me. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Real excited. Yeah. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, politics tonight. Um, but as I was just saying to uh, Matt a, a few minutes ago, Matt and I have... Uh, We've known each other for, we haven't actually seen each other uh, in person in uh, over a year. Uh, it's been a while, yeah. It's, it's been a while. Matt, Matt uh, uh, moved moved uh, moved away and we haven't seen each other in over a year. So in that respect, it's obviously worked out very well for you. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm excited to have this chat tonight. Uh, but as I was, we were just saying, we've known each other for quite a while and Mm -hmm. I don't think in all that time, I don't believe we've ever had a conversation about about politics. So I was pleasantly surprised when uh, I heard that you wanted to come on and talk about it. So I guess what I want to start off uh, asking is really what your how wh how long have you been interested in politics? How did you get interested in it? You know, where where do you sort of see yourself standing in the whole political spectrum? Um, what's your what's your deal? What's your story? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I really first got interested in politics uh, early in elementary school when we started talking about um, learning about the different political parties and who leaders were. I think I remember uh, that might have been around the time that the second Quebec referendum was happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that might have been the first real major political event I can remember in my lifetime. Yeah. And I, I just remember being really fascinated about the just the buildup around it and the coverage and uh, just the seriousness of something like that, but also the excitement uh, and mm -hmm. anticipation of, you know, seeing both sides and uh, just waiting to see the final result. You know, I, I'd never experienced anything like that before. Um, so I think politically, that was the first major event that I can really remember. Uh, and then the next one being really the 2000 US presidential election. Um, I think that was the first one that I had started following really from start to finish. Uh, and it was, I think, yet another really big defining moment for me as far as political interest and just the way that uh, the the sport of politics, I guess you could say, or election yeah. coverage. Um, uh, so that's those those two things have been really big for me. And I think as far as just uh, politically, I have not. I've not been too, too active. I mean, I did the most active I've got in terms of politics was uh, uh, it must have been two or three election cycles ago where I helped a friend campaign for their local candidate. And I was in the office and doing a little bit of canvassing. Oh, cool. uh, and that was a really interesting experience, you know, to actually be in the office and seeing all the different volunteers working the phone lines, knocking on doors, uh, really getting in with the candidate and getting out there and meeting people. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of see the political process from that side was also really exciting for me. That's awesome. I do like how your two kind of defining political moments were these extraordinarily, your, your conception of politics must be it's always a dead heat because the <laughs> Quebec referendum, which I remember very clearly as well, like that was, I remember uh, the prime minister at the time, who was Jean Chrétien, coming on television the night that that vote took place, like, I guess it was a few hours before they were meant to vote. It mm -hmm. struck me as he's cutting it very close. 
that's all I remember thinking at the time. It's like he's he's really leaving this very much to the last minute. <laughs> and he goes on to TV to basically plead with the people of Quebec to not vote in favor of separation. But that but that it wasn't an election, it was a referendum, but that referendum was practically as close to 50-50 as as you could get at the time, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah. It was really close. And then the 2000 U.S. election between George W. Bush and Al Gore was also extremely close. In fact, that went on for it didn't end that night. Right. That was one of those that went on for weeks because the whole hanging Chad situation. (laughs) And it went all the way to the Supreme Court and all the recounts. Yeah. 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 So. uh, So, yeah. So those are very like tense political experiences that you had when you when you were uh, sort of first becoming politically conscious, I guess. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, and I think uh, I think there's always an element of excitement to politics for me mm-hmm. in terms of uh, just the possibilities of what could happen, all the analysis that goes into it, um, whose platform is going to do well in what area of the country. Did you hear what this person did on such and such day? You know, uh, just all the ups and downs of it is, I think, what's the most intriguing part of, of the, uh, the process for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing too, uh, sorry, I don't, I won't dwell on the 2000 American election. <laughs> but the other thing too, because that was that was a big moment for for me too. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, one of the things that I remember best about that election, I was in my, um, I guess, second year of university at that time. Um, let me just figure this out here. Hold on a second. Yeah, I think <laughs> I was. In my, yeah, I'm just trying to do the math here on this. I must have been in my second year of, of university. And I remember um, I was saying I, how personally I thought it would be a, a terrible thing if George W. Bush became president. And a friend of mine um, said, yeah, but, you know, the Saturday Night Live sketches are going to be amazing. So personally, I want him to win. And I said, what? Like, that is that is a crazy reason why you would want somebody to win an election. And he said, what's the worst thing that could happen? So I will leave it to anybody who doesn't know what the worst thing that could have happened. But it happened. And uh, it happened not too long after that. So um, I mean, not, not everything ages well, you know. <laughs> We still talk about that, though. We, we, we still talk about that moment where he said that. But, but man, at least we have the SNL sketches, right? They, he was right. The SNL sketches were great. Will Ferrell was, was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, but that was that was a that was a, a huge election. And also at the time, the fact that it was so close was very unusual like i don't think there had been an election that close um that i could recall anyways during my during my lifetime and then and then after that they there have been a bunch of close ones like the next one in the states was close the bush Kerry one um the two trump elections were close uh the obama ones weren't so close but the other the other ones were were (laughs) were pretty close. So uh, it kind of kicked off this this period, which has been fairly consistent ever since of these close elections. Which I feel like goes to show that it's 
like they're the divisions are very clear you know and it's just a matter of uh like i mean there's it's really just a bunch of finagling to to get your numbers on one side or the other and mm -hmm. uh it's just a matter of who has the numbers at the right time i guess you know and then that yeah. kind of writes history for the next four to eight years but i've i've always find it very difficult to feel like you could be in the same country and have such very split uh split beliefs in terms of what you think your country should, should look like over the next four to eight years yeah um, i i I've ha i find it hard to reconcile that with the fact that you still can feel like you're part of the same country mm -hmm. uh and i mean i felt like that for a long time and i feel that especially these days those divisions are very clear and yeah. you know a lot of it depends on your geography or you know the different population that you live in uh who's around you you know yeah. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's it's very hard to really feel like uh, it's it's one country all the same when you have such very clear splits. Yeah. And I and I would imagine that many people in that country do not feel like they're in the same country with <laughs> with other people that are in it. So, um, yeah, I, I think that that certainly that certainly resonates. Actually, along those lines, I think that kind of feeds into what we, we are going to talk about, which is mm -hmm. sort of the role of, of social media in a way, because, um, well, um, if you go back to a couple of the I've done two other political uh, episodes of this now, and um, I don't know if you've seen them, but I but I've been um, I've been a bit cynical, I suppose, about the role of social media. And, and I think both of those uh, videos uh, so you can look back and a lot of it is like, it's not about tweeting. It's not about Facebook posts. So there's, there's a lot of stuff like that going on in my previous ones. Um, but I do think, I do think that to some degree, maybe social media is a little bit responsible among so many other things for like the, the polarization of um, ideologies in, in the United States. But I, maybe our way into this, because we, we both looked at this article by Freddie DeBoer called I'm Still mm -hmm. Here, um, which is about a couple of things. It's it's about, you know, where DeBoer sees, um, you know, the contemporary left movement today. Um, but he also talks a lot about how, you know, about social media. And, you know, he might be even more cynical about social media than I am, actually. And one of the things, so I, I'll just read out the first quote uh that i have from it um i'll put the article in the um in the thing below for anybody who wants to look at it afterwards but this is what he's what, one of the first things he says in the article this might be the first line nothing the internet has done i think has been more powerful or consequential than the vast increase in social conformity it's brought about every incentive in 2021 every last one pushes us to submit to the will of the crowd so that's the first thing that one of the first big things that he says, um, if not the first thing. Um, what's your? Do you have any reaction to that? I don't know if you thought about that already, or if you, or if you have any reaction just to hearing it now. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's very difficult to engage in uh, an honest and nonpartisan conversation on social media because you you definitely have. Uh, voices and everyone has an equal playing ground as far as i guess the platform that you choose but that means that you can be as loud as you want uh i mean you also you're also being guided by forces that 
are unseen and that can definitely control the kind of content that you're encountering. Uh, and you can't always guarantee that you're going to get the information from both sides or that you're always going to get a fair representation of the argument uh, that each side is presenting. You know, are you seeing what the other side is trying to explain or are you, or are you seeing one side's interpretation of the other side's argument and therefore you're going to you know, uh, absolutely interpret it in a way that would favor the side that's presenting it to you. Uh, It it almost feels like maybe a result is predetermined for you and you kind of shoot yourself in the foot in terms of having an honest conversation uh, from the get go. So, I mean, it's it's very tough. I definitely have my own cynicism when it comes to uh, social media and politics and how they mix together. Well, so along those lines, then, do you how what do you see the role of social media as being right now in terms of politics is it is it strictly does it strictly just play a bad role does it play a bad role but could play a good role does it play both sometimes bad sometimes good if so how um where where do you tend to see the how do you see that that role that social media plays i definitely think it's a mixed bag because for as much harm as it could inflict and uh, maybe does already, there is the potential for a lot of good. I mean, it's it's obviously the the main institution of of our of our lifetime right now, and everyone kind of meets in the middle as far as Facebook goes or Twitter or whatever your preferred social media channel is. Um, we don't all meet in the same place all the time, but I think that there is a really great potential for uh, social media to be that sort of uh, impartial or not so partial place for everyone to meet together so that we can agree or agree to disagree. Uh, Mm. It definitely, we need a lot of reform as far as uh, what it is. I don't think that the, the answer would be to create something new because really the power of social media comes from the people who are coming to these places, you know? So uh, I don't think the answer would be to create a whole new platform. I mean, we saw what happened with Parler. Uh, you know, you have a new platform, but you can't, either you're not equipped for that amount of users or you're not bringing enough users over. So, I mean, we already have people in certain places who are gathering here. And I think I think there's more to be gained with working to reform the things that are existing mm-hmm. versus trying to upheave and try something new. Um, right. It's never going to be a perfect system, but I think that there there is a fight, there should be a fight to try to make something a little more perfect than it was before. Yeah. So I mean, I I do agree. Like I think that there is a significant potential for for social media, right? There's um, you know, if you looked at let's say the Me Too movement, for example, that's something that started on social media. Now, you know, that was. That that to some degree maybe taps into something that Freddie DeBoer says closer to the end of the article where he says, what does he say? Let me see if I can find it. I don't know if I will. Um, I, I, I did take a lot of quotes from it. But oh, where he says that contemporary social justice politics are a niche politics. They fa- favor tiny fringes rather than the great mass of the populace. I mean, that was a major... Um, a made thing the the me, me too movement but it one of the, it never connected with other movements let's say or it didn't necessarily go beyond that uh, the movement itself i think was extraordinarily worthwhile and um i think it produced a lot of important 
at least in terms of general awareness of things, I think it was very helpful. Um, it never became anything bigger than what it was. And I think that in some ways that is that kind of potential of social media is to maybe connect. Um, but, but it never necessarily became that. Um, and so, yeah, so there's kind of maybe where the, where the downside is. And the other thing that you brought up too, is, you know, it could be a place where people could come to agree to disagree. But the thing that Freddie DeBoer at least is talking about in that article is that that's not what happens, right? People don't, for the most part, agree to disagree. They, if, if they disagree with you, you're like out of the family essentially. And so, um, and I wonder if that's something that you agree with, if you see that, um, if, how, if you do see that, how do we get around that or, or what kind of effects does that have? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, I think it's hard to, to have these conversations where you don't necessarily agree on all these points with uh, people that coming with different perspectives, especially when you're talking about very like such heavy and serious topics like uh, the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or any of the other um, movements that were mentioned in that article. Um, but I think it's also, it's, it's an, it's a necessary part of the conversation and of the movement, because if you don't allow for, uh, differing opinions, if you don't allow for that headbutting or that combating, then there's no, there's no real growth. It really feels like, you know, like mm -hmm. you don't get to defend your own positions. You don't get to learn and add little tidbits from uh, other places that you learn from. Mm -hmm. uh, it almost feels like the movement is the movement and it is the movement and will always be the movement. Right. And if you're not with it 100%, then there's no, there's no room for you. Yeah. You know, it, it really feels like you have to commit fully to the cause. And if you don't fully commit to the cause, you're, completely against it right uh, which is very which is a very difficult place and that's definitely it's a place i find myself a lot of times when it comes to a lot of the issues we face today uh and i mean for me personally anyway it feels like i feel that way just because of a lack of information mm -hmm. um i i mean there's so much to read there's so much to get caught up on things happen so quickly so i i find it very hard to commit myself to a cause that I've only heard about for five minutes, you know? Right, I, right. I would love to know more about it. I'd love to see what parts of it I agree with, what parts of it I don't agree with. Um, but I don't like the feeling that you feel compelled to completely agree with something before having the chance to really see how it aligns with your values personally or how it aligns with different things. Maybe like you were saying before, um, the things in this movement could align with things that are already existing. You know, maybe we can work together and perhaps grow it into something larger and something that allows for more people to be a part of it. Because I mean, I think like, I think generally, as far as, uh, as far as person to person, human to human, it's, uh, we're all, we all believe in the golden rule. I think we all believe that I should have the right to, you know, a happy and healthy life. You should have the, ha the right to a happy and healthy life. But I think the tricky and sticky part of it is what does that look like for every person? Right. You know, right. we all have our own definition of what that looks like. Yeah. And I think that's really where the divisions start to happen. And if we if we can't have those conversations to find out how we're the same and how we're different, then we're forever going to be, you know, either butting heads or passing each other in the night. Yeah. Um, I think the, the art of being OK with disagreeing with someone uh, has definitely 
it's become not so popular these days. Yeah. Um, but I mean, and also a, sh a shout out to your to your episode zero. The unpopular is very, very important. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Because, yeah, that's how we grow, right? We grow by encountering things that we might end up not liking and we might not end up agreeing with, but we might, right? And and that's the thing is if we if we close ourselves off to things, to most things, apart from this kind of small sliver of ideas and people that, you know, we know we feel comfortable with, then um, we're never going to grow as people, right? We're never going to find any new, anything new. We're never going to develop or anything like that. But I think, I think these, the point about being okay with agreeing with somebody ties into another big point of Freddie DeBoer's article, which goes back to what you were saying just a few minutes ago about how, you know, it's hard to know what to do when you are entering into a political conversation and you're only five minutes in and you're kind of expected to take a position on it. And, and one of the things that he points out, which I think is actually a really good point, which is to say we live in a kind of time period now where you can't be a somebody who's learning, right? It's, it's very hard to position yourself as somebody who doesn't necessarily know the whole truth about something. And I actually, beyond just politics, I see that as somebody who teaches courses at a university where students come into my classroom at the beginning of the term and they expect the situation to be something like the student is is there to tell me everything that they know about the subject that we're doing in this class like you're the student is ex as if the student is expected to already be an expert on this topic before they've entered into the room which to me is completely antithetical to what the whole purpose of an education system is because if you already know everything about the subject you shouldn't be taking that class right um and and i think that that just and and again i think that that speaks to a, a, a wider issue there's a good um there's a good sort of expert on on pedagogy named um, Ken Robinson has a really good Ted talk, which I, I, I do highly recommend. And he talks about also how we live in this sort of time period where we tend to stigmatize mistakes. Um, and you can, you can understand that when, especially like when you think about the, the realities of the material sort of existence in which we're living in, where like job precariousness is um, a bigger issue than it's been in, mm -hmm. you know, about a hundred, a little less than a hundred years, let's say. Um, and, you know, people are fighting for jobs. It doesn't, it doesn't help you to be wrong, right? You want to constantly show yourself as being somebody who is, who can come into that job, let's say, and be right about everything right off the bat. Because if it's not going to be you, there's somebody behind you who might be able to do it. So that's kind of the world in, in, in which we are living in. And that world, I think, is, is in many ways taking place online as well in terms of political conversations, where the minute you say something that's a little bit not aligned with the party line, it's like, oh, you're, 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 the, you're the worst person imaginable, you're a monster, you're not one of us, uh, all those kinds of things. So I think that that speaks to, uh, in many ways, the two things that you've addressed there, the idea with okay with being wrong and also okay with disagreeing with somebody, uh, being able to disagree with somebody politically and still work things out together, still see eye to eye, still see yourself as belonging to the same cause, let's say. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think um, just back to your point about being sort of out of the party or out of the family, like what is, what is the response then, you know, to that person who is moved out, you know, you get enough of those people who are moved out of that conversation. And all of a sudden you have another group of people who all of a sudden are not part of an individual uh, are not part of a group situation and have their own little small group now. So yeah. you've taken something that already wasn't united and you've not only not improved it, but you've made the situation even more difficult, you know? Yeah. And I think that from somebody who like, I, I, you know, I see myself as kind of being aligned with left values, right? So leftist political values. And it always strikes me as being a bit strange when, you know, the, you know, there's somebody who's, who also kind of is maybe let's say wavering uh, or doesn't necessarily see themselves as being belonging to any kind of political side, let's say. And, but they do have certain kind of leftist principles, but then they have certain viewpoints on things that I might not necessarily see as being all that progressive, let's say, um, you know, some, some would, some on the left would say, well, they don't have those right views on that. We can't, we can't do business with them. You know, we can't, we can't deal with them. They're out. Now it seems to me that if they were wavering between right and left and they didn't know where to go, that the right is going to only be too happy to, to welcome that person into their fold with open arms. So just from a very practical point of view, it strikes me as being not a particularly good way of dealing with things. So yeah, okay, this person has a different point of view on certain issues. Maybe if we are really right on our point of view about those things, we can convince them uh, without telling them they're a monster or you know they're an awful person. Um, or maybe, maybe we won't, but still necessarily it's, it's good to have that person with some of those views as part of our group. I don't know. I, that, but that, that strikes me as the most practical way of, of engaging with it. I think so. And I definitely agree with that because definitely as, I mean, people are very, we're complex, uh, human beings. We have, we can think multiple thoughts and feel different ways about different things. It's, it's impossible to feel a hundred percent left on everything or a hundred percent right on everything, you know? Yeah. Uh, so there is always going to be a little bit of room in the middle. And I think for one side to feel like uh, you, there's this, like, you know, you, you agree with a lot of the things they're saying and maybe they're very, they're, they're a great, uh, they're a great, you know, uh, talking point as far as this one issue, but there might be something that you just, just doesn't sit right. It might be just a tiny little thing to, to kind of disassociate yourself from that person because of some because of one little thing you might not agree about um is is a little unfortunate you know mm -hmm. uh and i think you also you also again like you were saying if one side is going to if the left is going to disown you for saying the wrong thing then the right is more than happy to welcome you and you i, I feel like i see this a lot of the time in popular media and in celebrity culture where you have celebrities or or uh, public figures who definitely I've considered as like leftist leaning, mm -hmm. uh, maybe say the wrong thing, find a home in the right because they can claim they can claim these people on a free speech issue. Mm -hmm. You know, you've kind of turned someone against you instead of working with them because of a small thing that you that didn't maybe sit sit correctly. Yep. 
Yeah, and so they and so they gradually shift over, and then be, and then tend to become even more entrenched, right? In the, in their in their point of view, um, because now they feel like you know they're on the defensive and their their backs up against the wall. So now they have yeah. to get even more um, extreme with their with their point of view. So yeah, absolutely, that happens all the time. But and, and in many ways, like I do feel like that's that is a kind of consequence. I was thinking of a, I was trying to think of a metaphor today to, 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 to work this through. I, I, I teach English, so I always think. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, in terms of like excommunicating somebody from the club because they don't hold quite the same point of view as you, it, it strikes me as being kind of like, you know, w- when you're a kid, let's say, I don't know if this applies to this. This doesn't really apply to me, but and, and <laughs> may not apply to you. But I feel like this is kind of how some some people could act. When you're a kid and you want to be part of like the the cool group, you know, and so to but you you don't really feel like you're part of that group, right? There's 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 part of you that's always feeling you know anxious about not not belonging, and so the way that you feel like you can appeal to that grouping and really solidify your place in it is to pick on somebody else because they're not they're not part of that group right and they can't quite follow the right social cues in order to ever make their way into that group so you kind of attack that person um, but really you attacking that person is just a manifestation of your own anxiety about your own inabilities to to um, fit in with that particular group so and but that strikes me as like kind of feeding into exactly what Freddie DeBoer is talking about where it is like if if you are if if it's a it's a problem to be a novice or if it's a problem to be a little bit ignorant on something or you know to to not be right all the time and you're constantly worried that you are going to be found out as being the person who's not right all the time which is everybody uh if you're that person then it's kind of your instinct is going to be to point out somebody else who is uh, didn't get this thing right therefore look at me i've got all these great credentials as being part of this group because i can point out that person is wrong and it almost it's funny because that like sometimes one mistake can almost become the defining characteristic for this person you know you you almost forget about anything else that they might have said or done that actually really did align with your cause to begin with yeah um and it sort of becomes their defining characteristic in in your eyes which is it's and again what what is going to happen from that you know there's only one result really that comes from that if that's how you're going to approach it and i i mean very true that we're all we're all making mistakes and there's this there's definitely this anxiety i feel like that comes from the left where uh i feel like a lot of people on the left are trying to continually out left each other yeah uh and it really instead of feeling as a united left it feels like there are separate splintered groups on the left trying to go further and further and really uh, again, instead of working together and finding out what the commonality is between all of the different causes and beliefs, mm-hmm. um, it's a competition not only against the right, but against your own against your own allies at one point, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I remember reading a, an article before the last U.S. election. And it was from an it was from a magazine or an online zine called Left Voice, 
and uh, I think it's left voice. Forgive me if that's wrong, but I think that it's left voice. Actually, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, <laughs> uh, just so that I know that I'm uh, uh, being honest about this. Uh, <laughs> so what happened was that, uh, oh yeah, here it is. Just a sec. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it up for you. So what happened was, is before the election, Noam Chomsky, who uh, again, it has been maybe mentioned in every single video that I've done so far, as uh, is is somebody who I really respect a lot in terms of um, his politics. I mean, Chomsky is, you know, um, self-proclaimed anarchist. He's a socialist, communist, whatever you want to call him. He's, he's one of those things. Um, but, but before the uh, election, the U.S. election, he said that uh, he thought that you need to vote against Donald Trump, and that means you have to vote for Joe Biden. And and Chomsky ha certainly has no love for Joe Biden, but he thought that that if, for the betterment of everybody, that in that particular case you should vote for him. Now, whether you agree with him or not, um, I think that it's what's ridiculous is that left voice, and I hear I'm going to share it. Uh, had this to say, which is to say that Noam Chomsky is a, a liberal, right? <laughs> and uh, meaning he's like, he's just this centrist. He's not really a committed person to leftist values. And it's the most ridiculous thing ever, right? And this is a, a, a zine called Left Voice saying it. But my the thought that went through my head at the time is, if you're not even going to accept Noam Chomsky into your group, then you're hopeless. You know, you're never <laughs> going to go, you're never going to amount to anything, right? Uh, and, and I just don't, under, I, I just cannot fathom this because you're absolutely right. This is a case of the left trying to out left each other where Chomsky now, who is maybe the most important figure in terms of leftist politics since the 1960s is being denounced by other lefties as not being left enough. And it's like, it's it's just it's ridiculous, um, but um, I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying. Um, if and if there's any place where there shouldn't be competition, <laughs> in terms of the general <laughs> ideology at work, it should be amongst the left, right? They should not be in competition with one another as to who is who is leftier than the other ones. I don't know. I just I didn't plan to show that, but I, it just reminded yeah. me of that because I, I remember being super frustrated by that when that when that happened. And again, I mean, it's it completely disregards anything else that Noam Chomsky may have represented or stood for or continues to stand for because if you if you look at it, I mean in the social media generation you can boil things down we like we like bite-sized information we want information you can digest in a couple of seconds yeah and if you feel like you can describe someone like Noam Chomsky in a headline like that then it makes it easier to decide whether or not this is a person who's in the club or not you know completely yeah. disregarding anything else he he may believe or think well, and it's also it's obviously a very clickbaity title. Like if you see that coming up in in Facebook or on on Twitter or whatever, Noam Chomsky is a liberal, and you know you consider yourself to be a leftist. You're like, what? What? What's going on here? I've got to see this. Um, and it does. It's it's not only you're you're absolutely right. Like not only it, does the title kind of reflect that, um, but also the the um, the analysis of. Chomsky in that moment demonstrates that because it 
it it undermines it, it doesn't even take into account the complexity of what he's saying because he's not mm. saying you should vote for Joe Biden because I really agree with Joe Biden Joe Biden's principles uh, <laughs> or his policies or whatever because he doesn't. Um, there's other there's other factors at work there, and I guess when you're so sort of myopic in your politics, you're not you're not gonna you're not even gonna pay attention to those complexities. So. There's there's no room for uh, for layered and complex arguments. You know things uh, like everyone that is using Facebook, like Facebook now is is a source of uh, news. You know people will get their daily news, and I'm guilty of it sometimes of keeping up with current events through social media channels. And sometimes you get the headline, and that's all you get. Sometimes yeah. you get the headline in the comment section, and yeah. then rarely you get the article. You know, so I mean, as far as what information is actually there how much of it are you actually getting how much of it is actually true and i mean to go back to that noam chomsky headline i feel like that's an article that's not even necessarily written for the right that's written for the left to move yeah. chomsky out you know yeah uh, so i mean the, the right like someone who has a right-leaning perspective would look at that and be like yeah i, I guess you know right i, I kind of already maybe thought that <laughs> i thought that chomsky was a liberal i don't need to be told yeah. that Noam chomsky was a liberal. yeah because for somebody on the right the worst thing to be is a liberal and so it's <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be chomsky that's part of that group yeah absolutely so yeah. i mean it's it's really funny that uh the left is sometimes has a has a really uh, talent for cannibalizing itself in a way, yeah. you know, whereas I feel like the right doesn't suffer as much from that. No, uh, there's definitely, there are, there are many loud voices, but, uh, I feel like the right does a better job of being generally united, uh, mm -hmm. on a lot of different things. Um, and I think that's an issue that the left is constantly plagued by. Yeah. Well, and I, and the, the, the words that I keep using in, in these political episodes is, is organizing and then mobilizing. Um, that first you've got to organize people, a, a broad base of support, which you're not going to do if you're constantly excommunicating people. And uh, once they are organized, then you have to be, you have to mobilize them. And, um, and I think that certainly, certainly in the States, the right has been organized and mobilized um, in a way that the, the left hasn't. And I think that Sanders, the Sanders movement came close to that. But I do think that, again, once again, because, you know, there's a lot of echo chambers going around and a lot of, of those Sanders supporters. And I and I I was somebody who liked Bernie Sanders a lot, but um but a, a lot of them were, were, you know, talking to each other and saying, this is it, this is going to happen. This is a sure thing. I've never seen anything like this before. And, um, and we're just shocked when it, it, it didn't work out. But I think that the actual numbers on the ground, while very significant for somebody who was, had the platform that Sanders did um, and really unique in terms of American politics um, was still not the numbers that I, I think that they thought, thought it was going to be. Yeah, I actually this point connects to something that I found very interesting about the DeBoer article, where he was making a point about how things need to happen gradually. And you can't skip steps by starting a movement, starting a hashtag, and then immediately expecting change. You know, there has to be there has to be that organizing, there has to be a simmering. Uh, you have to be able to go out there and change the public opinion. And then once you have that mass support, then you can enact, enact real change. Yeah. Uh, it's it's 
I think the left, uh, especially recently, has done a great job of organizing and really leveraging social media uh, and harnessing them to to support really uh, really important movements. But I think where it kind of fizzles out is that that next step, you know, in terms of trying to really build the support and change the minds of people on the ground uh, and have a united front instead of really just jumping to the the next big thing, you know. Yeah. Like, yep. uh, it, 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 it's difficult. Uh, and I think that definitely is one huge thing that stood out to me in the article for sure. Yeah. Well, along those lines and this, I did want to share, and this has been, I mean, I'm far from the first person to, to share this information. So forgive me if this is like just old news now. Um, but this is, and, 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 you know, I, I, I tend to like to talk about Canadian stuff on here a lot, but um, it's been a bit U.S. heavy tonight, and this is just going to continue on with that trend. So <laughs> I, I apologize for that. It is from the BBC, so it's not quite a, an American news story, but it's about American news. Um, so this was; these were the results from the U.S. Uh, election. Uh, maybe you, you had seen this before, um, but I, the, the thing that I really kind of I think was surprising for a lot of people. Uh, was uh, you know where sort of the support was and where it wasn't, or where it, where it increased and where it it fell. So um, between 2016 and and 2020, um, you know Trump slightly lost support only amongst one category it, that's listed here in this group, and that was with white men. He gained support amongst everybody else in this category, and I know that there's somebody there, there are people who are, who can't see this, so I'll read it. He gained support with white women. He gained support with black men. He gained support with black women. He gained support with Hispanic men. He gained support with Hispanic women. He gained support with Asian and other ethnicities. Um, all grouped in there together in the last <laughs> in the last <laughs> listing. But anyway. Um, that's that's problematic, but but uh, but nevertheless, uh, and I and just to to be very honest about it, obviously um, the support that Trump had in 2016 and 2020 amongst people of color was was still quite low, still very low, um, but nevertheless it went up in those in those communities, and I have to imagine that those statistics would be shocking to people who spent a lot of time on social media um, talking about various issues. And I think that that entirely speaks to exactly what you were just saying, that there is a there is an organized group out there, but it's not entirely broad. They haven't done the work of really getting out there and convincing uh, um, people, changing their minds, have even lost people a little bit. Mm. Uh, and... Um, and certainly um, have not um, mobilized uh, that group because they haven't really organized them necessarily, that, that particular group um, who are beyond their, their sphere. Now, I, I'm sure there's multiple reasons for those, for those numbers, and I don't want to entirely blame it on social media. But I, I do think that to some degree that kind of echo chamber phenomenon might be a result of that. Um, in much the same way that I was saying before about something we were talking about. I can't remember what it was. Um, but the idea that it must must have been just shocking to people who um, 
who just were, were on social media. They're like, how could that possibly be? Because all we've been saying for the last four years is how racist and misogynist and all that stuff, which he is. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But um, obviously that message didn't translate into the to the population. Yeah. And I think I think those gains, that's actually the first time I've seen that graphic. So, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, but I look at those gains and to me, again, all I see is uh, I see a small group of voters who are generally maybe undecided every election cycle. Right. Looking at what the left does. Right. You know, and how they are able to, you know, push uh, left figures to the right because of uh, because of what they do or do not subscribe to. Mm -hmm. And I think that small change is what you're seeing, yeah. you know, is is probably the idea that, well, there's one side that treats its own this way, and there's right. another side that maybe doesn't really. Yeah. Uh, and I think you also had the benefit of uh, Donald Trump being the incumbent during a very turbulent time, and maybe yeah. that's something that settles uh, a lot of people's fears in terms of looking for stability. So I think if you look at maybe just those two factors, yeah, uh, I'm sure there are many others. But uh, if you take just those two in isolation, I'm sure that they definitely played a small role in terms of those, uh, those bumps that you see in those different areas. Yeah, I think you're I think that you're absolutely right. But 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 and then it does show us that, you know, obviously, you still there, uh, just to go back to the point that I keep raising in the videos, you still have to do that work, right? You still have to get out there and you have to talk to people and you have to be prepared to confront people who, um, who, who aren't going to agree with you. Right. And, and he's, uh, Tabor says that right in the, in the, one of his last paragraphs, again, in a probably provocative way, because he talks about, he talks about the new left, right? The, um, mm -hmm. Uh, and by the way, again, that that Chomsky article is a perfect example of the new left because, you know, they're categorizing um, this stance that he's taking on voting for Biden uh, as being an example of his liberalism. That is also a good example, I think, of what Freddie DeBoer is saying, where you have this people who have become politically conscious in the last five years or so uh, who think that that when somebody does something like what Chomsky says that, what Chomsky saying, vote for Biden, um, that doesn't make him sufficiently leftist. But as Chomsky himself pointed out, leftists have always done this. We've always thought about voting in a strategic way because it's mm. voting is, is only a small part of the actual political process. Right. Um, so it is, it's, it's, it's always been part of leftist tradition. And as DeBoer would say, a lot of these people don't know what that tradition is, um, which, again, is fine. They don't need to know that, you know, they're, they're new to it. They don't know, need to know what the tradition is. But they also they also need to accept the fact that they might not know everything about <laughs> <laughs> that's been part of this, this history. Um, so uh, and be and maybe be open to learning. But uh, but yeah, so that's DeBoer says. If you disagree with my values, if you think the left should change from what it's been, the path is simple. Do the work. Convince people. Convince me. Organize. And then here goes back to social media. Get off of social media and into real world spaces, otherwise known as your actual community. <laughs> do, do the shitty grunt work that real activism entails, the boring, dispiriting, exhausting trudge to slowly winning over one convert at a time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's I, I, I think that to me, at least, that's that's the key thing. Yeah. And I think um, 
something that just popped in my head as you were speaking was that it it really feels like there's there's a certain segment of the left that believes that the things that it believes are obvious truths. Yes, you know. Yep. And I'm sure I'm sure that this argument can be made for certain segments of the right as well, but I feel like the cannibalizing aspect of the left comes from the fact that you don't accept these truths that we see as self-evident. Yes. Therefore, there is no there is no discussion. Therefore, there is no growth. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like that that definitely makes it difficult to to increase your numbers, to to change people's minds, to uh, to have some sort of compromise. You know, it's it's a very all or nothing approach um, when really not like uh, politics, government things have never, ever been that way. You know, it's it's definitely a struggle. It's a collaboration. It's a lot of compromise. Uh, neither side is ever going to get everything they want, but you hopefully are able to meet in the middle and agree on certain things and be able to walk away and fight another day, you know, mm -hmm. uh, instead of getting further and further and further apart from each other. Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of things that I, I'm, and I apologize if I, if I talk too much, but it's in the title. Um, so I should have known. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that you're right that, that we, we have this kind of, I, I count myself in as, as one of them, that we have this sort of instinct of seeing what we believe as being true. And I do, I do think that in some ways that's, that's an intuition that I think most people have because, you know, why would you believe something if you didn't believe that it was the, the truth? So that so that's a hard thing to get over. Uh, but I also think just to, to not to beat uh, the dead horse on the echo chamber thing, but that's a much it's that's going to that's a phenomenon that I think is only going to increase when you surround yourself all the time with people who believe what you're what you what you believe, because as soon as somebody comes in and says something different, it almost seems like an alien's point of view because it's like everybody I know is saying this, is saying X, and you're saying Y. Obviously, Y is wrong because everything that I hear says X. Uh, and I say X, they say X, and you're saying Y. So you must be wrong on that. Um, so, so that's another kind of uh, consequence of it. And But also to your point, I think it's, it is a lot more practical to not think that way because I, I don't know about you, but when I have engaged with people in a debate about politics, what I have found is that if I begin from a place of, I might not be right about this, or, um, you know, I don't know everything there is to know about this, and I'm open, I want to hear what you have to say about it. I tend to find that the other person in that conversation will be more open to thinking that way as well. Because then they know it's not like a wrestling match where it's just about you showing each other how much you know about one subject, but it is more about a kind of a learning experience. And I and it's I do it because it's rhetorically a good idea, but also because it's just honest, because I don't know everything there is to know about this subject. And I'm not entirely 100% confident about everything that I believe in. So it's 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 helpful rhetorically in, in, in an argument, but it's also just honest. And, and I think that that's, that's generally speaking, probably the thing that's absent in on the left a lot, not, not exclusively, but a lot. And I think it's the thing that can really help them grow beyond their, beyond their borders. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to the point that Deborah was making about being in real life spaces and communities mm -hmm. versus online spaces. Uh, it's true because uh, I mean, you're not you're not always the one who gets to choose what information 
you're surrounded by. Um, I mean, a lot of these things are sort of nudged to make you feel like you have a sense of reality around you when really it's just all kind of built around what you already all lean into. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can really create a false sense of reality that everybody does believe this and who doesn't, whoever doesn't is a minority. And, you know, you, because you're the, because you're the majority, you can treat the minority this way. Yes. Uh, instead of bringing them in or uh, having an open dialogue, you know? Yeah. Um, so when I, there's definitely uh, a dis, uh, a disassociation when you try to take that idea and feeling of how you feel in an online space and you transplant it onto reality and mm -hmm. you see that it's not actually that way, you know, and instead of, I feel like there's a natural tendency to dig in deeper to where you are at instead of trying to find where the disconnect is and realizing that maybe the online reflection and the discussions you're having there don't actually emulate the real life perspectives that are happening around you. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've been in plenty of conversations with people in real life. Like I get into an actual real life situation where I don't have the luxury of like looking things up quickly. And like, oh, I'll show them. Hang on a second. Let me see what this person has said. <laughs> and then I'll just give them a little Chomsky and yeah, pretend that that's me. <laughs> Smackdown. Yeah, exactly. So I don't have that luxury when I'm, you know, when I'm actually in, in, in person with somebody. And you feel super confident. And then they say something. It's like, oh, I never actually expected that kind of response. And, and But I think that those things are super healthy. Like they can actually really help you. Because for it could either do one of two things. It can make you then go off and, and look up the answer to it and then strengthen your actual argument. Or it could change your mind. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it in itself could change. Because that's the other thing is that, you know, you have to be to some degree open enough to actually think that they could change your mind as well. And if you and if you take on that role, then you're more you could be just as likely to change theirs, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't count the number of times that I get into a discussion or a debate with someone where I don't fully know how I feel about the issue that we're talking about, yeah. but it's in it's in the talking and discussing and sharing of viewpoints that I I feel like I'm able to enrich my position or really discover how I feel about something, you know, it might even be a discussion about something that I had never really considered and therefore didn't really have a stance on. But in talking about it and sharing with people the different viewpoints, I am able to kind of feel how I feel about this issue. Uh, right. So I, I definitely, it's an uncomfortable feeling, you know, it really is just generally, it's an uncomfortable feeling. And then you kind of compound onto that, the fact that it is hard to be wrong publicly. Yeah. Um, it's, Even if it's, it's just with one other person, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So it's uh, it's healthy, but it's not always the easiest thing to lean into. Uh, yeah. But I do, like, I definitely do walk away from a conversation like that feeling like I know more either about myself or about the other person. Uh, and I have that urge and that willingness to want to learn more about these different issues and topics. So I definitely, I don't think that they're, there can really be harm that comes from uh, going into something if you're not completely sure about it already. Uh, as long as you're going into it, knowing that you're, you know, you empty your cup and uh, you're willing to really hear out other people genuinely and you're willing to participate from your own side genuinely as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, before I, I want to anticipate certain potential uh, critiques that uh, I get from this, from this uh, from this conversation, because I know that you know there'll be certain people on the left who will say, "You talk about these as being problems." Is we've already said it, but just to, to clarify, um, it is true that there that the that the right is as guilty of all of this as the left. But if I may be so bold. As somebody who's speaking from the left, and maybe Matt has a different perspective on this, and he can share that perspective if he wishes. But as somebody who's on the left, I don't, I don't care if the right cannibalizes itself or if it, or if it, you know, is it, it positions itself as being so, you know, closed-minded that it makes people leave. I, I'm happy if they do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't want my side to do it. I, I'm, I'm fine if they do it. Um, and uh, but so just to just to get that out. Yeah, very, very much so. I, I uh, plus one for me on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, um, so to to bring us well, actually, b before I ask this question, do you do you have uh, any other points that you uh, saw from the article that you want to discuss? Um, I think just in terms of uh, just the the issue of of unity uh, was really the big thing for me and. The only thing that the only other thing that really came across for me is I can't really I can't pinpoint certain left uh, pundit celebrities. You know, I feel like the left would really benefit from a, a popular voice and a popular figure. There are many like there are many great sources out there. But who is the who really is the left equivalent to a, uh, a Ben Shapiro or a Tucker Carlson or an Ann Coulter? Like, who are these people? Um, yeah. I think if the left can really rally around someone in popular culture or in mainstream media, uh, that's something that would really, I think, help in a, in, a, in the long way. But again, I think that comes from being able to come together on on certain things, and uh, I'm sure that both sides have a little bit of organizing in their houses to do that before we get to that point. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. We we definitely don't have a figure who is on that level like we don't have a um yeah shapiro we don't even have like a like a like a as, as much as i am hesitant to even say his name uh we don't even have like a jordan peterson like figure you know what <laughs> I mean? um and and I, I i there are people that i that i follow that i really like like um one person right now he's got a, a great youtube channel called give them an argument his name is ben burgess he's an american um and uh focuses uh, mostly on american issues and he's got a sizable following and he he first came to my attention because he was on um he he was connected with a guy by the name of michael brooks who again, did not have that kind of that same sort of status as the, as those people on the right that we've talked about. Um, but he was very young and um, and very like he was very personable and he would do all the kinds of things that we've been talking about is is a good thing for the left to do. He was going out there. He was trying to connect with people. He was talking with people in a very open minded way. Uh, unfortunately, he died um, uh, of a of a. Um, pulmonary embolism i think um last year and he's just 30 38 years old or something like that wow yeah so um who knows what what he could have been but um but but the other thing is and and i think that you kind of 
alluded to this closer to the beginning of our discussion, where um, a lot of these a lot of these outlets, YouTube, um, Twitter, Facebook, are much more geared towards. I think are much more geared towards the kind of incendiary points of view that you see on the, on the right. Um, and so, and also, also there's bucket loads of money for them if they want it. So if some major corporation wants to feed them millions of dollars to really come up with a pristine show and put it up on YouTube or go and do the circuit around all the various different colleges where they can, mm-hmm. you know, make fun of 19 year old kids, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they, they can do that, right? They can afford to do that. The left doesn't have that kind of same institutional support. So you're, you're absolutely right. We, we don't have that, those, those figures. And I think it is possible to have them. I think it's possible for them to break through. It's a harder, it's harder though. Um, so, um, so I don't know. I, I, I hope that it happens, but, uh, but you're right. It is something that we're, we're definitely lacking. I hope so too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't mean to, to go negative on us there, but, uh, but I mean, that's a good thing to be aware of, right? That there are, in terms of the, um, system in which we live, the, the institution is set up a, from the get-go against those those points so you Absolutely. have a you have a big hill to climb in order to break through often what works is to be famous first and then slip in slip in some of those um kind of leftist point of view views john lennon did it for about two years so there, there's <laughs> there's one there's one person so would you say you're about 20 percent of the way there here or <laughs> <laughs> Halfway. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's well. That's thinking very positively. <laughs> we're on. We're on the board. We're on the board. Yeah. <laughs> we're on the board. Exactly. Exactly. Listen, you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. It's still early going to end. Um. Uh, how, how's uh, uh Sorry, this is this is totally off off uh, topic. How's how's the basketball season going for you? Uh, it's going okay. I mean, I we have reasonable expectations of what we're going to see from the Raptors this year. I definitely feel like as a fan base, if you remove the 2019 championship season, we are definitely more comfortable as underdogs. Mm. Um, we de- There's definitely a prove them attitude, I feel like, that's inherent in uh, Raptor fans of our generation. So I feel like this is yes. definitely another prove them season. Uh, you know, when all the sports magazines say that you're only gonna. You're not gonna make the playoffs, or you're gonna come second to last, or last in your division. Right. That kind of stuff really fuels us as fans, and definitely me personally. So yeah. I'm very excited to see how we do when we get healthy again. I mean, Pascal Siakam should be coming back very soon. Uh, our draft pick Scotty Barnes has been really good. Uh, he's, okay. I think, he's ranking uh second or third in terms of the uh rookie of the year race right now so wow. a lot of people were really doubting the pick when we grabbed him so it feels yeah. really nice to see that he's uh he's excelling and doing really well and it's nice that they're back home you know it's not the yes. Tampa Bay Raptors this season we're back in Toronto yes uh full attendance so that also feels really good yes well that's that was that was my experience with the Jays this year um who who had a momentous uh, oh, turnaround? Tough, tough break this season. Yes, <laughs> it was unfortunate. <laughs> God. But but that that final day 
was one of the most exciting days of sports that I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen anything like that, where even after the Jays game ends, they're still like, it's not over. Like, this is still... You still have to wait. <laughs> and then it was over. It was over. <laughs> but until so, it wasn't, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And then the Braves won. Uh. <laughs> of all teams. <laughs> Um, so, the, uh, but, but putting that aside, um, cause that's even sadder than the, uh, left not having, uh, uh, institutional support. <laughs> one, uh, one thing at a time, I guess. Hey? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was going to ask, so I, you know, I, I have my own issues with the social media that I've talked about. There is just to once again read the same Freddie DeBoer quote uh, that I read a few minutes ago, uh, you know, convince people, organize, get off of social media uh, and into real world spaces. Um, but but we started off this discussion by saying potentially there is hope for social media. Um, so between these two worlds of social media can do good and get off of social media and into the real world, what what can we what can we do? Is there anything you think? What do you think would be ideal in terms of what we should do in order to make social media a productive political space? I think uh, one of the huge benefits of social media is its ability to gather people in real life. Uh, I mean, it makes it a very convenient and easy way to help organize, so that you can have the discussions you're having online in real life and move them off of. Uh, off of that platform into the real spaces. So I think it's a nice, it's a nice uh, means to an end. I think right. definitely instead of uh, social media being the actual end, it's a tool we can use to get to where we ought to be and have those real discussions. I think that's something that is very, that can be done easily now. And I think is happening um, more and more now that restrictions are lifting, depending on where, where you're at or uh, yeah. how things are doing that way. Yeah. Uh, I think no, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, go on, go on. Uh, yeah, and then I think another big thing is it's definitely gonna it's gonna require a lot of work. You know, uh, I think the past elections have shown us, both Canadian and uh, U.S., have shown us that it's you can't always trust the information that you're going to come across. So I don't know. I don't know where uh, who has the ability to address a problem like this, but obviously places like Facebook and Twitter are, uh, places we go to for information that we can trust and information that we use to make important decisions, whether or not we should, that's, uh, that's essentially the fact that we are living in that kind of reality right now. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to grapple with the fact that there are, there does need to be some sort of, uh, some sort of control you know, or some sort of uh, legislation that can help us filter out different things that are hurting the conversation already more than more than it already is in terms of uh, the kind of content you're seeing and what is and is not allowed on these platforms and whether or not the information that's being shared is actually uh, vetted, can it be trusted? Because it, it's it's really a medium of picking up information super quickly. So uh, if I'm going on Facebook for my political discourse and my information and who I'm going to vote for, I am going to look at it for a couple of minutes, you know, 
and I feel like I I definitely know everything I need to know. It's sort of that Dunning Kruger effect of where you feel like you know everything and you really do have uh, so much to cross, but don't realize it. So I think if there was a way to limit the amount of uh, the amount of false claims, the amount of uh, amount of really trash that you come across, uh, it would really go a long way. And like I was saying before, I don't think the answer is to create a new platform. I think there's a uh, greater potential to work with what's already existing and mold it into something that's a little bit more useful and a little bit better than it is right now. All right. Awesome. So one area where we might have to talk a little bit more, because we, I think, I think there's one area of debate here, which is because I, I would see myself as being a fairly, I don't think anybody's a free speech absolutist, but I'm pretty close to being one. So I don't, I don't know if I'm as comfortable uh, with, um, with um, let's say a kind of um, institutional response to misinformation, but I agree with you that there is a lot of misinformation and distorted information out there. Um, and I think that, that it certainly needs to be something that's dealt with. Um, but that's, a, I think that's a conversation for another time, but I think, that that's a, <laughs> but, but, but I think it would, I think it would be an interesting conversation, certainly. Absolutely. Um, but I, but I, I, I also really agree with your point about uh, the internet as a, as a space for, um, for, for organizing offline uh which is uh i think really that would be a great tool for for social media because it is a space where people gather together um and it is a space where you could say hey we're going to meet at this at this place or we're going to do this and um yeah i think it would be very ideal uh for for that particular purpose so yeah i think that's a great it's a great idea um so with that in mind, maybe we'll maybe we'll wrap this up. But um, is there a uh, we were you, you wanted to plug your uh, the one hundred days of code? Oh, yeah. yeah, sure. Uh, I uh, I've definitely spent the last couple of years uh, picking up some programming skills uh, through places like YouTube and other uh, websites where it's really easy le to learn to pick up these skills, and it's uh, it's a great community. Uh, there's a hashtag called 100 Days of Code that you can follow on Twitter. Um, and it is a challenge where you code or write some code or learn about programming uh, every day for 100 days. Uh, and it's a great way, if you haven't done it before, to really start and find out if programming is something for you. Or if you're someone like me who gets into a rut every now and again, it's a great way to motivate yourself and get out of that rut. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of people at different levels of um, skill and knowledge who participate in this discussion all the time. So if you've ever uh, thought about computer science programming or you are curious about it, it's a great way to get started and find out if it's for you. Uh, and if it is, there's definitely way more to get into. There's, uh, it's definitely a rabbit hole that uh, you can find different places to end up in. Now, are you, you have been doing, you're in the middle of it right now, right? I am, yeah. My current iteration of, uh, of uh, 100 Days of Code, I'm on day six, okay. <laughs> this current iteration. This might Good. be my like third or fourth time running through it. Yeah, uh, I haven't wow. hit 100 consecutive days yet, right. but I think it's, it's such a great tool to help you just keep going, you know, because yes. when you're learning such complex concepts or something feels difficult, it can feel 
easy to give up. Uh, yeah. So something like this is a great way to help keep yourself accountable, to help uh, join conversations with other people who are going through similar things that you are. And it's a great way just to uh, keep motivated and keep that keep that number going up every day. Yeah. Anyway, Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate this. It was a great conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. It was a great conversation. It was yeah. really fun having me. Will you come back? Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Awesome. May and uh yeah. And uh we'll we'll have I think I think I would like to have that conversation with you about about um uh I don't know if free speech is the right way to frame it, but something along those lines would be would be awesome. Yeah, but this yeah. Was, looking forward this to it. Great. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh we will oh if you liked this conversation, there are uh, plenty uh, more on the way. And so please feel free to like the video. Please feel free to subscribe to the channel. Um, and that's all I got for now. So thank you. Hold on. I got to set up my closing thing here. So uh, actually, let me just do one more thing before I stop. Uh, all right. This was the smoothest outro I've ever done. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh thank you very much matt thank you everybody for watching and we'll see you in the next one take care bye-bye